Um, well, she's got a, um, a rare gal for a friend. <laughs> uh, she's, she's a pretty wonderful gal. Too. No, I, really yeah, no, it. I'm, um, you know, I'm not saying that facetiously, Debbie, that, um, it, how good it is to have friends. One of my first, I shouldn't, maybe I'm making a confession here. One of my first responses to the prayers we get is because I know that so many of you carry heavy burdens when you're praying for somebody who's in trouble. You know that my own mind goes to Boethius and Christ and sometimes <laughs> I don't think God never does not answer our prayers. I think he does, but it's not always in the way that we want. And um, and that sometimes we're asked to bear burdens, e even death, maybe, maybe most especially death, because it's the be and and end all, you know, the, the measure of all things when we lose our lives, that we have to set all of our prayers against that and know that death is the, death is the sort of final test, final measure of our, our faith, our hope, our charity. That, so when our friends are facing death, we grieve. There's a large sorrow in our hearts. But at the same time, I think all of us in our faith are asked to turn over to God, trust in Him, and somehow, somehow be consoled, find a consolation in, in our trust of Him. So I, I will, um, Betsy's her name, yeah, Debbie, yeah. Any other prayers, any other prayer requests? Karen Blackwood, could you put a, could you click on your visual so we can see you and Bev? been an age since we've seen you in evenings. I would love, to, I think all of us would love to see each other, but if you can. Robert, yeah. Bev does not have a camera. Oh, Doc said Bev doesn't have a camera. Okay, let's, let's start. Um, a number of people um, wrote and um, um, God, um, holy cow. Fred and Francis have family. They're not going to be able to be with us. And a couple of other people wrote an email, and it's Thanksgiving week, and so people are, you know, having guests and relatives. So um, let's let's start. Um, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, what to say? We're heading towards Thanksgiving. God, oh, it sort of shakes me. We set aside a day annually to offer thanks for the pilgrims who risked everything. How can we say thanks enough for the great risk of their lives that they loved you enough to flee England, to flee the Netherlands, the Netherlands, um, um, to find a place where they could worship you freely um, not be told what to do politically, to be compelled by, in their faith by some political force. So we have this image of pilgrims landing and giving thanksgiving for um, arriving safely on our shores and not facing hostile Indians and 
being able to say thanks for all they have. We're approaching that day this week to offer thanksgiving. Our faith is that we should approach every day in that spirit, that if, um, if we allow our critical minds to get in the way and constantly find fault with things, we're not somehow not living our faith. So we offer thanksgiving for all our blessings. For the hundreds of years that we have been in existence as a nation from that first founding, that the people set themselves aside to, um, um, to be a city on a hill, to be a beacon for other people, that we could worship God, for, worship you, um, God, to give you thanks for all our blessings. Um, we live in troubled times. Um, I think it's a serious question for many of us whether or not our freedoms are being protected right now, that our desire to worship you is greater than any political exigency, exigency necessity, whatever. Um, so we ask for your blessings on our country to protect our freedoms and a blessing on all of us in this week as we approach Thanksgiving, that every day this week, going into that holiday, uh, be an occasion for every one of us. <laughs> Take note of a list. Take note of a list before we get to the bad things of all those things we are grateful for. Um, that remind us of your blessings, whatever the sufferings um, each of us carries, because I know most of us carry heavy burdens. So we ask a special blessing on Betsy that her um, that her surgery and recovery go well. Um, that whatever happens in this um, in the procedure, the surgery that takes place, that she comes out of it well that she's able to finish what she began with her family, with her children and her husband. Um, if it's not to be so, your will, let their children find a strength in their faith. Sometimes we get angry at our losses instead of realizing there's some good for us in them. Whatever happens there, help everybody to know that you're turning something to good. That's the great truth we found support from from Boethius. Um, help us to make it real in our own lives. So I ask a blessing on all of us and all that we're doing in this Thanksgiving week. Help us to go into Thanksgiving Day grateful for all that we have, even whatever sufferings or burdens we carry. We offer these prayers in you, Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay. Let's finish, God, let's finish Auden's Horae. God, I was, I was hesitant to do Eliot's Four Quartets because it was long. Um, the time we spent on Eliot's Four Quartets seems short next to this. I'm going to read the end of the Horae poem and just ask your thoughts on it. Remember, 
that he's taken us through a Good Friday day. The poem is structured on, Hi, Bob. It's good to see you. Um, he's taken us through the canonical hours that, that, the, that was a part of the monastic life. And um, in each one of them, as he described the world, it, it's a... Actually, it was beautifully done because he situated us in the world of our everyday lives. But he set our everyday lives against this event that was taking place, the, this execution of this guy. Remember the judge and the hangman all set off that there was going to be this sacrifice, a criminal, criminal executed. Everybody went off to do their duty, and most people went about their lives as if nothing out of the unusual was happening. Everybody wanted to get through the day. They wanted to have their days, like every other days, be happy, go on their vacations, have their wealth, have security, no problems, go to the end of the day without any gripes or complaints. Except on this particular day, this guy was killed and lots of people didn't give it any meaning. So behind each one of the hours, um, um, remember the prime, terse, known, vespers, compline, and then finally lauds. Behind every one of the hours um, was this event, and it defined everything. So that as we move through the poem, we, I think we became more and more aware that what was happening corresponded to the day Christ was crucified that at midday he was taken before Pilate and Hera and he was scourged and all these things happened. And then finally at three o'clock he was executed. The sky darkened and something changed. And in Vespers at nighttime, the poet's looking back and wondering what happened. Something happened, but he can't quite admit it. So in a sense, the poem is an expression of the way in which every one of us goes through the world, taking for granted, Good Friday, in some way that we're doing all we should in the world, but we're forgetting this one event that took place, um, the crucifixion of a God, that what could never be possible was made real, that an immortal God um, allowed himself to be taken to a cross and executed is a way of paying for our sins. That's how grave our sins are. It took a God to redeem them because since our offense was against God, there was no satisfaction that we could have given to atone for that sin. It required a God who would have also been human. So it's the most extraordinary event that could have taken place, that will ever take place. It defines history. So we've gone through each one of the hours. We, we looked at Vesperus last time where Auden was looking at these two antitypes, the, the Edenic and the Utopian people who look back to Eden and forward to a Jerusalem. And all of that was completed, and now we're at Lodz. No, we're at Compline. We skipped Compline. No, we did Compline. Or we did Compline, sorry. We're now we're at Lodz, and it's the early morning hours, and it's a time of praise. So we've gone through the day in prime, waking up to a new day and going through the hours. 
um, we've gone through the hours, passed through comp line, um, the end of the day, and now we're in early morning um, on the beginning of a new day. So that's the action of the poem. And you know from me, from all of our work together, the, the plot describes the incidences, but the action is the underlying whole, the, the whole movement from beginning to end. And it's always important to try to grasp that whole. If we see parts, we're missing something. It's crucial for us to see holes. And generally, you don't do that well. We've been talking about this for years. One of the great things we're called to is to learn to see, not in parts, but in holes. It changes the way we see. So here's Lod's. From Laudere La to Praise. So we've gone through the ordeal. It's past. The evening's gone. It's early morning. It's the beginning of a new day. So in one sense, we're being returned to prime. The poem began with the poet, the narrator, coming to consciousness out of sleep. The whole underworld of sleep is put away, and he begins the new day and enters into this scapegoating activity. The, the, that, that kind of mechanism in all of us in which we participate in putting somebody on a cross um, at the center of uh, the center of which is Christ. So here's lots. Among the leaves, the small birds sing. The crow of the cock commands awakening. And here we get this refrain again and again in each one of the stanzas. In solitude for company. Bright shines the sun on creatures mortal. Men of their neighbors become sensible. In solitude for company. The crow of the cock commands awaking. Already the mass bell goes dong ding in solitude for company. Men of their neighbors become sensible. God bless the realm. God bless the people. In solitude for company. Already the mass bell goes dong ding. The dripping mill wheel is again turning. In solitude for company. God bless the realm. God bless the people. God bless this green world temporal in solitude for company. The dripping mill wheel is again turning among the leaves. The small birds sing in solitude for company. Okay. <laughs> in every one of the other sections, a lot was said. The poet was very verbal voice he had a, a good bit to say in lods very little is said you've got what one two three four five six seven is that right seven stanzas yeah seven stanzas with two lines each with a little bob a little ending for in solitude for company so what's he doing in lods and i don't know how stands why is this appropriate for lods and I, I don't think we can answer the question if we don't answer this question. Um, the, the stanzas are, consist of two lines with a kind of weak rhyme. It's not a strong rhyme. We'd call it, a, in poetry, we'd call it a feminine rhyme. Sing, awaking, mortal, sensible, awaking, ding, sensible, people, ding, turning, people, 
temporal turning sing. So they're slant rhymes. They're not blatant, obvious rhymes. So each of the couplets rhymes and each one of the couplets moves the action forward and one of the lines of each of the couplets is carried forward into another stanza, another couplet. I'm not sure if everybody's seen that, but I don't, I don't think we can talk about the meaning just in the words. We're not going to um, grasp the meaning of this laud section if we don't look at the poem's form. We've been talking about that forever because most of us don't see form very well. So what's he doing in Lodz? What's going on here? What are your what are your responses? I'm not I'm kind of, I'm not sure anybody any ordinary person could pick up this Lodz section and appreciate what he's doing. It just it's so subtle. But what do you guys? What's your response to this? Mark, I'm, 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 oh God! I, I, you know better than to ask me about poetry, dog. I know, I know. <laughs> I have a thought. Wait, wait, before you. I just, I'm so appreciating Mark that 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 Mark could 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 pause over something in bewilderment and have and not have a comment on it. Is it's just all like all I could do is express this sense of great wonder and gratitude. So. Jeannie, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, it seems to me that maybe he's trying to show um, the re re repetitiveness of life that everybody is back into the same <laughs> pattern habit. Was that a? Did your husband say rut? He did. Oh, yes. Jeannie, go get a bat and hit him over the head. God, what do you do with that man? <laughs> God. Um, <laughs> Except love him. Yeah, that's all you can do. <laughs> yeah, I know. What else is there to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that's all. Just just that it's a pattern of a repetitive routine. Can you illustrate what you mean, Jeannie, by repetitive routine? Well, it's not a it's not a rut, by the way, but repetitive routine. Can you flesh that out some? Well, the way the um, the the lines are repeated not? every other stanza, one of the oh. lines Where? repeats, On the stack underneath um, and the in solitude for company repeats at the end of every stanza. And I, I'm not sure what exactly what that means. I'm still thinking about that, but. Um, everybody's waking up, they're realizing that they're, the world around, is, around them is awakening too. Uh, they hear the mass bell ringing, um, they say their typical prayers, God bless the realm, God bless the people. Um, the mill wheel turns, that certainly is something that would be very repetitive. Um, and that's that's really all I have. Yeah. Anybody else? 
does everybody see that the that the concluding line of each stanza is the beginning line of a stanza one stanza away so in the first stanza the second line is the crow of the cock commands awakening in the third stanza the crow of the cock commands awakening so in the second stanza the second the concluding line men of their neighbors become sensible the opening line of the fourth stanza is men of their neighbors i think that's what genie's referring to yeah genie am i yeah that we're seeing something carried over over an over an intervening stanza so it's like an insight in one place gets carried over into another and is hidden in it so there's the sense that we're moving forward but something from the past is being carried with us is that clear so the crow of, or so already the mass bell goes ding dong two stanzas later the first line is already the mass bell goes ding dong the the second line of that stanza the dripping mill wheel is again turning the first line of the last stanza the dipping mill wheel is again turning what's why is he doing that is everybody following that uh, an expression a description of something beautiful it, it's the morning the morning's beginning there's a glory to the morning think about the poem began with prime right a guy comes out of sleep he carries all these nightmares with him and he, and he enters into a fallen world the scapegoating world the poem ends with lauds so the first line among the leaves the small birds sing the crow of the cock commands awakening the world's waking up and it's waking up to a glory so we so we're we're not in prime anymore where the guy's coming out of a dark sleep this guy is is awakening to a world in glory among the leaves the small birds sing the crow of the cock commands awakening bright shines the sun on creatures mortal the sun is out for all of us it's a glory it offers us light men and their neighbors become sensible we become aware of each other we're coming out of solitude we're coming out of sleep into the glory of a day already the mass bell goes dong ding the mass is calling us to christ so every morning begins with the sun rising it's always there the birds are singing the crow crows people awake with some sense of others um, the dripping mill wheel is again turning activity it's fruitful it's it's going to produce something so there are these lines describing events taking place in the sun rising the day beginning the glory of the day being carried forward subtly buried you could miss it if you weren't paying attention but it's there so this harmony exists in god and um um we can watch it becoming apparent in alternate stanzas debbie debbie go ahead you go ahead did you have a comment yes uh, and, and it's really a reflection on on something that happened about a week ago um maybe it's a little more than a week ago um bruce said to me uh, because i would quite frankly um 
recently I have had a lot of despair about principally what's going on in our country. And it was really affecting me. And he said to me, tomorrow the sun will rise, rise yeah. and it will be okay. And I said this to Suzanne when I saw her uh, a little while ago. And I said, you know, uh, one of the things that you had said is that evil will always lose. Right. And so this, this tells me that we are going to move forward. Yeah. The sun is going to rise and, and actually things will be okay because Christ is here. Um, he's everywhere. And and so it's 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 going to be all right. And so that's what this tells me yeah. is that certain things are just going to they're going to keep on going. And and you have to have some faith yep. that that's that's what's going to happen. Yeah. So um, thank you, Suzanne. Thank you, Bruce. You helped me through kind of a really bad bad time as far as as feeling pretty down in the dumps as to where where things were going to be going yeah can you so. include somebody else in that thank you please <laughs> yeah you <laughs> <laughs> tell right. tell tell bruce hey, tell tell <laughs> tell pat yourself on the back bob <laughs> tell tell bruce for me he's still got some work to do <laughs> Yeah, I know. You Marines. <laughs> I know. Oh, God. Um, imagine what Suzanne has to go through all the time. God. Oh, Debbie, I'm so... Hey, I feel her pain. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Keep you Thanks, women... Debbie. Keep, keep you women apart. <laughs> oh, Debbie, I'm, I'm so glad. Honestly, so glad for your example because it's perfect. It really is perfect. Um, it really is. And and by the way, just to to not over romanticize this, you know, be, um, because um, you know, among the leaves, the small birds sing, the the cock is crowing, the the day is awakening. Bruce is right on. God bless. God bless the Marines. I mean, what else can you say? Um, but 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 the, the, I I want to. I don't want to lose your point. Um, I think lots of us. Um, are carrying heavy burdens because of what's happened politically in our world, and I think dangers. And I don't think the um, the the fact that the birds are singing every day is going to take away those burdens, but they're there, and it's a reminder that no no matter what's going on in the political world, there is this or this was the central theme, the push of Boethius's consolation that there is no bad fortune, no matter what goes on in the way of punishments and rewards, there is this order. God is always bringing us, working to bring some evil. He's, he's no, protecting evil. good out of evil. He's protecting our free wills. So he has to work with them. And punishments and suffering will come with rewards. But our faith is, and it's got the su support of reason. That's been so important to our work together. It's got the support of reason. Boethius is, is not doing anything with faith. He's making a rational argument to show there is this good that's diffusive. It's present. It's working. No matter how bad things get, 
God, God will not be, we may have to die. We may have to go to war in a battle, Marines, Army, Air, you know, we may have, we may buy, we may be a policeman shot. We may have to die in the line of our duty. Um, it'll be an awful thing to experience. But our our faith is our, our the the center of our rational activities. What we do with our minds is there is this good. We cannot let go of it. So tell tell Bruce, bless his soul, bless his soul. Um, Tell him to, 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 for me to keep working on that stubborn wife of his. <laughs> just so you know, Debbie, Suzanne came home that day and we were talking about it. I was just, I was glowing with, you know, all that she was describing. Anyway. Um, I think that... Um, hmm? Go ahead. Sorry. Can you hear, can you hear, can all of you hear Doc? It's Lodge. It's Lodge, yeah. It, so it's praise and... I think what he's saying is that um, so we've been through this awful experience that we didn't understand. The scapegoating. The scapegoating, um, the fear, the not understanding. And we the come, denials, the de constant denials. But we come to the next day and God's goodness is there and it's there not in wonderful spectacular ways it's there in very life. ordinary very ordinary life I mean, the yeah. birds singing the sun coming up the, the, the crow cocking right yeah crow. Um, becoming aware of our neighbors again um, it's all it's all very ordinary and it's good it's something we should be glad for, for yeah. and praising yeah on that, I mean, just to conclude, um, just because it goes to Jeannie and we haven't answered every one of the stanzas. So you see the the lines carried forward, right? If you missed them before, every every concluding line is the beginning line of a stanza one off. But every stanza ends with in solitude. So in solitude for company. Among the leaves the small birds sing, the crow of the cock commands awakening, in solitude for company. Right? The reprise, the refrain is constantly in solitude for company. So why does every stanza end with that refrain? It's a reprise, it keeps it's it's a melody. By the by the way, if you go back, this is really interesting. If you go back just for a second, if you could, if you go back to um, page 10, towards the end of Vespers, you get this line, remember, talking about the, the two antitypes, the Edenic and the Utopian. Towards the end, he says, one, one reason for my alarm is that, no, no, um, one reason for his contempt is that I have only to close my eyes, cross the iron footbridge to the towpath, take the barge through the short brick tunnel, and there I stand in Eden, Eden again, welcome back by the, the crumb horns, the dopians, the sore dooms of jolly miners, and a bob major from the cathedral Romanesque of St. Sophie, um, it's either in Germany or Russia, I'm not sure. 
But it's welcome back to these musical, this, um, um, this, um, welcome back by the existence of music, that they're welcome back to music being played. The Krumhorms, the Dopians, the Sordums are all wind instruments being played, if you can go back to the Renaissance or the medieval times. But also a Bob Major from the Cathedral, Romanesque. The Bob Major is an expression of um, one of the movements that's made with bells. So if you've ever entered a cathedral and you hear bells going off, you know that, that a series of bell notes will be sounded and each one of the different notes. So you get one bell sound and then another bell sound and then another bell sound, um, which harmonize with one each other. So each one is, is presenting a different note, but, um, but they're in harmony. So what we've got at the end of the poem is the same thing, that a line is being carried over as if a ringing were occurring, as if a bob, a bob note, that carry over a bell, so you hear one ring, and then in another instance you'll hear another ring, it'll be picked up with another voice, so that we have these voices um, interacting and being carried forward. So behind the stanzas, remember poetry has a musical element. Behind the stanzas is this principle of these bells um, taking up different tones and carrying them forward um, in a repetitive way. Jeannie was describing it, she's talking about, I can't remember how she put it, but this this repetitive character, you know, of the each of the stanzas moving forward with a different note. So there's a musical element to this whole thing and it reinforces the sense that there is this beauty and music and harmony to creation. I think Suzanne and Debbie and Jeannie all said it well, that there's this goodness and beauty and harmony. Do we see it? And when we pass from one thing to another, from the birds singing in the trees to the crows and the, the mass bells going off, and the um, the mill the mill wheel turning, you know the water. Do we pass from one thing to the other, and still appreciate the beauty that they share together, the harmony, the 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 way in which, oops, the way in which different bell <laughs> sounds are picked up, the different harmonies are picked up, so that we see the beauty of God's creation. And that when we wake up in the morning, we can praise and say, thanks, God, thanks. So it's interesting that, that Auden completes this long poem through this Good Friday day where we've been taking, taken back through the, the execution of this man. You know, the judge and the hangman set off. They, this is a criminal. It's so crucial to see that. The judge sets off, he's got these high-minded ideals. He's going to bring justice to the world. The, execution, the executioner is going to perform his job. This prisoner is going to be executed. That's exactly the way most people would have looked at Christ's execution thousands of years ago. So in Good Friday, we're being taken through the day, taken back 
in time and forward into the present when somebody's going to be executed without any sense that we're involved in that man's execution. That there is this tendency in all of us to scapegoat, to blame somebody else, to, to put somebody on a cross before we would um, get out of our own lives because we're so preoccupied in what we're doing that we move through the whole day like that and then come to the next morning. So instead of going back to prime, when the guy's awaking from his dreams in his own inner world, inner world, his nightmares, his unconscious, you know, all those tribal drums, now he's awakening to a world outside of himself. It's the beginning again, just like prime, except he's not inside of himself. He's standing in the presence of this glory of creation in solitude for company everything everything in nature longs for communion to come out of solitude into another from solitude to company so the poem is a is a great affirmation of this missing scapegoating denials living in our worlds, but all of us longing to come into this glory for which we're grateful in solitude for company. So, any, any, it's been a long poem. I, th I think it's, um, in some ways, it's much harder than Eliot's Four Quartets, but um, it's, a, it's an amazing poem. Um, speaking, I think, for our world and the longing for Christ and gratitude, wonder. Any, any closing thoughts or comments? Mark, what do you think? <laughs> I think poetry is a whole lot of fancy words that are way too confusing. Oh, God. <laughs> somebody, somebody show me how to delete some of the people on our site here. No. God. See, Mark's actually explain in one sentence what that poem means. <laughs> Do you do you even hear yourself some explain in one sentence? It's Mark, what what wait, what wait, one of the one of the things you should have learned now after five years is that the 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 most basic things that we believe in are almost impossible to describe. I think every one of us could take a book to describe the most important things and we still couldn't get to them. Um, Mark, it means that as we go through the day. We have the opportunity to reflect and be conscious of, grateful for all that has been given to us from Good Friday to today. See how much better that is, Doc? No. <laughs> God. Oh, somebody, yeah, except she left out and why I was going to add, and I knew you'd like that. God, what to do, what to do with people like you? Um, except she left out at this. Is that what the poem does? Yes, is that movement. But in order, along the way to that lauds, this praise, um, is this bringing to awareness of how much we live in denial, how much we scapegoat, how much we look past these things, how much they're at the root of. Remember the lying city that we're building, the city that we go on in our lives and do all this stuff. That's essential, absolutely essential. But at the root of it is the crucifixion of this 
person. And so before you get before you get to the laws at the end, just just be clear that part of what was included in the action of this poem is the poet making us aware of how much we take for granted, how much we contribute to Christ's crucifixion, even if we don't want to admit it, and that finally, even if we acknowledge this stuff, um, there is this great glory going on that we should be glad for. So that was a long sense, but that would be my, that would be my description of the poem. And Mark, just so you know, you should be afraid all of this poetry that you've been hearing, all of these images that you don't think make any sense or that take too long to say something that could be said shortly, are working in you. And you will feel them, whether you oh, know it. I will feel them as they hand them to me on my way down to I was going to say, I was going to tell me, does my wife even know what she's saying, to whom she's talking to yes, right now? I do. Yes, I do. Debbie, that should, that should give you some indication of what goes on here at our home. Actually, that will be my place in hell is with all the damn. No. That'll be exactly oh, my place you, in hell. Yeah, you, you want us to laugh at that. No, nobody on this line is going to give you up, Mark. Just You know that already. Here, can we get past this guy's bluster and take on C.S. Lewis, please? <laughs> Bless your souls, all of you. Jeannie, Carl, did you... Carl, are you okay? What's that on the side of your head? The genie, the one, that's a mean right hook the genie gave you planted on your cheek there. <laughs> Genie's looking innocent too. <laughs> Carl, what happened? You have to put your audio on. Maybe he doesn't want to say. I said that's my sacrifice patch, and it's for um, sympathy. <laughs> 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 it, uh, it's cancer. Oh wow! So my dermatologist is uh, he's just working hard at it. We got we got more sun up here. Oh wow! <laughs> over here. Yeah, you don't expect us to believe any of that, do you? We know that all those bruises. We know where all those bruises came from. <laughs> well, they get well tended by the nurse. I'm the one who has to put the bandages on every night. I can't see them. <laughs> <laughs> Jeannie, just to let you know that I mean, we're, one of the small bandages now. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They're, they're healing. They really are healing. It's yeah. good. It's taking a long, long time. Suzanne took a fall about a week ago. She made a quick turn coming out of our hallway into our bedroom. Those of you who've been in our house, and she landed on the bricks, the hearth in our fireplace, and she fractured her wrist and bruised her head and. Um, and everybody's we know has been telling me to stop beating her up, and I'm saying there's no way I'm going to stop. But um, but one of the after effects is that for the last week I've been learning how to put her hair in a you know in a ribbon and um, tightening her bra, and I mean, I'm, do, I'm, I'm doing all of these things. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I'm learning all of these things that women have to. Put up with it, you know that men don't even think about it until you until a woman loses a hand or can't do anything. It's so. Well, buy her a new hat. <laughs> buy her what? Just buy her a new hat. Buy her a new hat. I don't think that's going to work, Mark. 
Okay, let's let's um, no last comments on on uh, Hori Odd's poem. I thought it was an extraordinary poem, and I'm glad you all you know had the endurance to go through it because it's not an easy poem, but to me it's a remarkable poem. So I'm I'm glad we've done it. Um, no last comments before we go to Lewis. Can I have that page? Which page? In the printer. Okay. Very, very quick last couple of thoughts on Boethius. I just want to... Um, I thought Sue, she's run off somewhere. I hope she can hear us, but I, um, I thought Sue's comment last week was right to the point. A couple of things to conclude on Lewis that I, I just... I want to reinforce. I, I don't want to. Lewis or Boethius? Or, or sorry, on Boethius. Um, um, I don't want to lose a chance to reinforce a work that I whose importance I think is really great. Fred and Francis couldn't be here tonight because their families um, gathering, and and I'm sorry because I know this would mean a lot to Fred. I'm going to ask him to to tune into the audio and get this, but. A couple of things before we leave Boethius. You remember that at, at late in his attempts to cure, Lady, Lady Philosophy's attempts to cure Boethius, she says that, um, that there is no bad fortune. And though Boethius is left with all these questions about free will and predestination and how we know. And, and Lady Philosophy makes um, these... Um, three points that I want to underscore as a, as a way of, of, of trying to help everybody understand the principles involved in what Boethius is doing. She makes a distinction between two kinds of necessities. She does it in a number of different ways. I want to try to simplify that. She said, if somebody's sitting, so I turn to Suzanne, she's sitting in her chair, I'm sitting here, Sue Edens is sitting in her. If, if Sue is sitting in her chair, it's necessary that she's sitting there. She's not someplace else. Can't be anything else. It has to be. She's sitting there. And if I'm describing her, it's necessary that my words are faithful to what's there. So if I see her, and express what I see in words, it's necessary that my description conform to what's there, right? So there's a necessity in the fact, what's going on, Mark is there, Bob is there, Debbie's there, I'm here, but um, there's a necessity also to the words that I use to describe what's going on. It's true, They're tr it, my words are true. There's a necessity to them. It, it can't be any other way. I can't say of Sue right now that she's not sitting there because she is. So it's necessary that my words reflect that. She goes on to make the point then that the fact that I see Sue sitting in her chair does not determine the fact that she's sitting. That I can see her there, but my seeing doesn't determine it. Okay? 
Now she goes on to do two other things. She talks about how we know as humans because she makes the point, and this was absolutely crucial to her argument, absolutely crucial. God, I'm really missing um, um, Stacy or Tracy, Tracy, because I know this is important to her. Um, she makes, she says. It's not only important that we know the nature of a thing, its intelligibility, what a rock is, or a star, a planet, or what Bob Capecchi is, or, you know, a geological mine or oil field under the ocean. It's not only important that we know the nature of that. When Bob was actively a geologist, and he would go about the world, and he would study ocean currents, and you know, land deposits, he would make conclusions that would be important for the people who were um, drilling for oil because they'd want to know whether they were going to make their investments right or not. So what he concluded was absolutely crucial. If he misled them, I'm assuming they would have thrown him overboard to the sharks. <laughs> um, but when he didn't and he said something accurate and they could benefit from it, they would have rewarded him. Um, so it's not only important that we know what's there, it's even more important that we know the way by which we know things. So she goes on to say, it's even more important that we know the mode of the knower. And we took some time with that last night, and I just, or I mean last week, I just want to be clear because we're going over what I think are first principles, and I don't think these are the things that most people know well. She said, it's even more important that we know the mode of the knower because if we don't know that, we may not be right on what we think we know. Because lots of people claim to have knowledge about things and they're mistaken because they don't, they don't question. They, they don't go back and ask how we know things. Do we have a way of testing ourselves? Is what we know really right? Is everybody okay so far? So the question that I asked last night, I mean last week to get clear on this is, what's the difference between the mode of knowing of a dog, a human, and an angel? So if there's a tree present to all of us, you know, a dog's looking at a tree, I'm looking at a tree, an angel's looking at a tree, does each one of them grasp the tree in the same way? Or does the fact that they're different in being affect what they see? So the dog is not going to see what a human sees, and a human's not going to see what an angel sees, because they have a different mode of knowing. Now let me stop just for a second. Is that clear? Jeannie, tell me, tell me, I mean, let's, I'm going to, if I can go to you for a second. There's a tree in front of us. A dog is before it, a human's before it, and an angel's before it. What's, what's the dog going to see? What's the human going to see? And what's the angel going to see? Because each one of them has a different mode of knowing. Well, the, the dog will see a solid object that you know, it has height and dimension and he can't walk through it, he has to go around it. Um, 
he he isn't going to know that it's a tree. He isn't going to know that it's called a tree, and he isn't going to know that there is the concept of tree that humans would have in their mind. Um, when we see a tree, we can we can think about all the trees that exist or have existed, all the different kinds, all the different uh, varieties, whatever their scientific term is for them. Um, and we can think about what you can do with the products from a tree. You can eat the fruit, you can you know, make lumber out of some trees, that kind of thing. Um, build a fire, yeah, good, good point. Um, and the dog isn't going to know any of those things. An angel, <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I don't know. They would certainly have a different concept than a human, but I don't know exactly what that would be. Yeah, good for you. You should be here teaching. You should be. Oh, no. no, you're doing great. Does anybody want to try to fill in for Jeannie? What What would an, I mean? She's. I. She, I think everybody sees how right she is. Right on what a dog would see in a human. A human could see the species, the form, a form. He'd know the concept of a tree, so he could distinguish between a eucalyptus and an oak and a you know poplar, and he can grasp the form conceptually. What distinguishes one species of something from another? A dog can't. So an angel, I mean, a human can use reason to, to, so a human takes what his senses give him. There's a tree there. It's got these particular physical qualities. But he can go beyond a dog because a dog doesn't have reason. And a human can abstract from those physical qualities to <laughs> its form, the form of a tree. So what's, what's more universal? So if he looked at a hundred eucalyptus, he'd say they're all the same. They have this form, and it's this form that distinguishes them from a hundred oak trees. So humans can grasp, can abstract from sensory details to grasp a form. Dogs can't. They don't have reason. So the question we're still left with is, an angel doesn't have a body. So a dog, a dog knows through his senses, and I think dogs have a kind of primitive imagination and memory. They can, but they don't have reason. Um, a dog can grasp the, can respond to the physical things that's in front of him, but he he can't grasp. He, he he's incapable of having an idea. He, he can't. A human can. A human can have an idea. He can grasp the form, the idea, the concept. Angels don't have bodies, so they're unlike dogs and they're unlike humans. So how would an angel, what would be before an angel when there's a tree before him? Can anybody help Jeannie out here? Sue, I'm watching that mind of yours. What do you got? Yeah, a couple ideas, but they're not very coherent. I think Jeannie said it. It's very hard to imagine what an angel would yeah, say. Right, right. Um, in my mind, if you if you are not sensing things, you somehow know an essence of things. So an angel would know a tree's beauty, a tree's contributions to the ecosystem in some level. 
I, a, a person could know that, but wouldn't think about it right away, I think. But that's, that's sort of where my mind was going. That's why I was looking complentative, um, if that's the right word. Um, you know, if you weren't just looking at its physical nature and its categorization, its rationalization, if you were looking at it as something God made and its contributions to the whole, its, its sense, its beauty, um, I, I don't have the right words to say. Oh, stop it, stop it, you can stop. You were, you were right on and coherent through the whole thing, so you can stop beating yourself now. All, all of that I thought was wonderful, Sue. No, really, I mean right on. The essence and the fact that you would have related to the other things to see it in terms of a whole, I, that wasn't incoherent at all. That was, that was good. Is everybody clear that an angel doesn't have senses so that, and I really love the way Sue put the, you know, its essence. I think to say it's clear is not the right term. But aside from that, I'm with you. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, I thought that was lovely. That, does everybody see that? That she's nope. No. <laughs> don't even ask that question, Bob. We don't even ask a question about that. That's like saying, "What was God saying?" You don't even ask that question. Oh, stop! I did. Su Susanna's in the kitchen laughing out loud right now. <laughs> she should be. <laughs> Anyway, ask a question about something that you can't possibly know about. Oh, Mark, be still. Ask him to get sent to hell. No, God. Oh, God. Um, Before you answer that question, you are a convert because you never had a Catholic mother. Oh, because you never had a Catholic mother. Oh, be, yeah, I, I, I know, and I'm, and we're not. I, certainly, I'm. Hold on. If everybody, I'm going to mute everybody for a minute. I'm turn everybody off to get Mark under control. I, I'm not. And I hope everybody else is not going to feel sorry for you because you've been complaining about the, for five years about being raised by a Catholic. I don't want to, I'm not going to hear that nonsense. Poor boy. No, we can ask these questions. We can discuss. Mark, be still. We can discuss these things. We can know. We, we cannot step inside the, the mind of an angel. But there are things we can know with some probability of truth. Some things we can know firmly. Others that are you know, somewhat speculative, but I think Jeannie's comments, Sue's comments, are 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 right on. I mean, they correspond to a fact. So, here, let me stop here because I, I we could go on, and I don't want I don't want I don't want to take I don't want to take you on right now, right, Mark? I want to get on to C.S. Lewis. The point that Lady Flossie is making right now is that it's if we're going to talk about this question of predestination and free will, we have to be a little bit clear on how we know what we what we know, and you remember that she goes on to sh after having described these two kinds of necessities to describe the way of knowing of humans. I hope I hope all of you I hope all of you can just be open minded for a moment. We know as humans that we know through our senses. That's our human nature. We're different from angels. We're different from dogs. We know through our senses because we have a body. Feel, touch, hearing, all of those things. We know that. That's That should not be a doubt. That's self-evident. We, we, all, we all know that we have imaginations, that we can imagine something. So we, according to our senses, what's delivered to our senses is the actual material object, a tree. What's delivered to our imagination is the image of it without the material object. 
That's why it's called an imagination. What happens with reason is when the senses deliver a tree, reason can abstract from it to get to its form. That's a fact. These are facts. We know that. We can know the form of a tree. Every definition, when we make a de definition of something, a car is, we, we identify the species, the form of thing. A car is this. A tree is this. A human is this. The species, which Sue called so rightly, God, I mean, she's, um, I'm going <laughs> to, Catholic? <laughs> she's, um, She's scholastic. I mean, she's, she's absolutely with the scholastic tradition and using the word essence. She's right on. It's the essence of a thing. It's form. So the senses deliver the material thing, the imagination, the image without the matter. The reason grasps the idea, the concept, the essence of something. Understanding takes us somewhat beyond to a kind of wholeness. In the scholastic tradition, the medieval tradition that Thomas brought to perfection, I think, he said that reason, ratio, the word that they used then was ratio, could reason step by step. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's the great gift of us. It's also the kind of power that some people, I'm not going to mention names, some people get hung up on. <laughs> Just leave it there. Understanding is grasping holes where you, know, you take things step by step by step by step, but you arrive at a point where you say, ah, I see. And you're no longer just seeing parts, you see a whole. And I know, I know all of us have had that. And, and I know it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's not altogether common, but we also know that it could be more common if we read better or paid attention or, because we know that we're capable of having that moment of going, ah, if we're reading a good person or we're seeing things or something happened to us, it'll hit us and go, I see. And what you see is not just an accumulation of parts, you see a whole. And Sue's description of an angel, I think, matches up with more in accord with that way of seeing. Intellectus means seeing the whole, understanding. If you remember Boethius's argument, remember he described things in terms of a circle, that at the center of the circle, is a still point. It's not moving. The farther away you get from the center, the things are faster. But at the center is that still point. That still point is God understanding in its simplicity everything. So Lady Philosophy says, look, these are the faculties that are at work in the way humans know. We all know that. There's no, there shouldn't be no dispute about it. And she goes on to say, can the senses see what imagination sees? No, they can't. Can imagination see what reason sees? No, it can't. Can reason see what intellectus or, or understanding sees? No, it can't. But understanding can see what reason sees because it's the whole. Reason can see what the imagination sees and imagination... So she says that like... Um, like the senses, we often can't see the way God sees. So she's, she and Mark are together at this point. Um, and then she, to go to the next step, she says, 
for us to even begin to appreciate the, the way God knows, we've got to distinguish between perpetuity and eternity. And I hope everybody's clear here. Lady Philosophy is not pretending that she knows the way God knows. That's not what's going on here. Just to put to rest some whatever concerns anybody has. Because she's saying quite the opposite. But she says, in order to get some sense of the way God knows, we have to make a distinction between perpetuity and eternity. She says, perpetuity is a succession of moments eternally. They just go on. What is about to be will become something, and before it's something, or before it's, you know, a second later, it's already receded into the past. So the, the, the most real moment for every human being is the present. Not what's yet to be, not what just went into the past, but what is. And she says it's interesting because that present moment right now when we're talking is the one link we have with God because for God there is no past or future. God lives in an eternal present. So he sees things differently from the way we do. We're in perpetuity. Things are already passing into a past. Things from the future are already coming to be. We cannot see the way God does. So we're, we're like the senses in comparison to understanding when we think about the differences between the way we know and the way God knows. And it's at that point that she goes on to conclude her argument because remember she began by saying there's different kinds of necessity. If Suzanne's sitting in this chair, it's necessary that she sits there. If I'm describing her accurately, it's necessary that my, referred, my words reflect that. It's true that she's sitting there. I can't say that she's not sitting there because she is. But does my seeing her necessitate her sitting there? No, it does not. In the same way, even though God sees everything always from an eternal present, it doesn't mean he determines them. We don't know the way he does, but he sees there's no past for him. There's no future. He's in an eternal present. So his mode of knowing differs from ours. And it's important to see that and understand that the fact that he sees things doesn't predestine them. I gave the image last week, and I mean it's a sort of poor analogy, but it's the best that I can come with. If we think about God, I mean, I, Sue, I hope you're here because your image just appeared because you made a you 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 underlined the point last week. That mean God. That mean God foresees things. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows the future, but he doesn't know them the way we do. That doesn't mean he for he predestines them. It just means he sees them. He sees according to a present that that it's so hard for us to grasp at, and we. We can't experience it because of our human limitations, but, but we can understand the truth of that, even if we can't enter into it you know, from our own experiences. I try, so we can, we can try to explain things by analogies. That's one, one of the ways we have of explaining things. So even though we're humans, we can, we can use our minds and our use of analogies to try to explain something that we don't grasp very well. So I gave the image last week of picturing God, you know, watching, let's say, Suzanne and I going down a river on a, on a raft. 
and we're just out for you know a, a water rafting or something and around the bend are a gang of people who want to get us you know who want to take over the raft and steal our money and um, do whatever they're going to do to us God sees that as a present as hard as that may be for us to conceive he can see it that means he can intervene he can let it be he, he, you know that he does not want to violate his rules, his laws, his way, the freedom of our world. He's not a puppet master. We know that. Everything he does protect our free wills. That means, in some instances, the, the thieves may attack the raft and kill us. In some, I mean, let's let's let me create a scenario here that Suzanne said she's got to pee. Pull the raft over. So we pull a raft over and something happens. You know, I mean, we can create our own scenarios. We don't know. We just don't know. But what we do have a sense of from Lady Philosophy is that God sees all things. The fact that he sees them does not determine them. But that um, we know, our, our faith is that he's a God of love. That um, the source of our reason is God because he's reason itself. So we can use reason badly and put ourselves at odds with God. We know that a lot. People use their reason in bad ways, just like they love in bad ways. But the, the point that Boethius is making is that we can bring our minds into conformity with God. We can, remember the, remember the whole action was Boethius had lost his mind. He's in a state of amnesia. This whole question of anamnesis, forgetting that the whole point of what Lady Philosophy is doing was trying to help Boethius recover his sense of beginnings and ends, where he came from, where he's going. It wouldn't be until he recalled his beginnings and his ends with God and who this God is, what he's doing, that he could put away this feeling sorry for himself, his anger, his pity, and um, know that God was doing things um, even if he didn't always understand them. So the whole question of rewards and punishment, why God allows evil people to prosper and good people to suffer, rewards and punishment, is because he's always trying to protect our free will and bring us to something better. So the complaints, the blaming, the scapegoating means in some ways we haven't really accepted who we are or our God. Because if we understood him well, we'd, we'd understand what Boethius, is, Lady Philosophy is saying, that God is trying to bring good out of evil, that he sees things differently than we do, to presume to say, you know, God determined this or God determined that um, is a mistake on our part. Um, um, we 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 can have some I don't know what to call it sketchy knowledge of God, but we cannot we cannot know an infinite being in whom there is no past or future, and the way He knows and the way He looks after us. One of the reasons for scripture, this is St. Thomas, one of the reasons for scripture is because our end is salvation and we can't attain salvation on our own. It's impossible. 
God gave us salvation to help us move towards our final end with him. And we know from scripture that God, this is from scripture now, God counts the hairs on our heads. He knows the fall of a sparrow. So if he would, if he knows the fall of a sparrow, if he can count the hairs on our heads, he knows us. The, the last words of Boethius were for us to continue to try to do good to participate in God's goodness because the more we do the closer we get to seeing the things the way he does instead of standing outside sort of blindly thinking we understand things when we don't it's that image of the circle again and the still point at the center so those were those were the that was the movement of the Boeth, of the consolation towards the end it's interesting to me too that at the end of the consolation we don't go back to Boethius We've got Lady Philosophy making an argument, it stops. We don't go back to the jail cell. We don't see Boethius' response. We're left with this image of um, God seeing things in a way that we don't fully understand, and but trusting from what she said that there's nothing that he's doing that isn't trying to bring good out of evil. Does that mean some people won't commit themselves to evil? No, it does not, because some people do. But the whole point of that is that we have a great help in reason, that reason can help us move closer to God. Not a matter of faith, it's a matter of using reason to understand the nature of things. So, so let, me, let me stop it there and um, before we turn to um, C.S. Lewis. Any comments or questions or before, we, before we leave? Question. Yeah, go ahead, Carl. Uh, could you go over again, I, I must have not been in close attention, on this notion of essence that the, uh, in the asking of, you know, what does an angel see? Help me understand that a little better. Boy, essence. Jeannie, help me out here. <laughs> she tried. I'm here, but um, Carl, I'm not sure that I can help. Let me just say this. You know that our senses give us individual things. If I touch something, it's going to be your shoulder or your cheek or your head. Or if I see something, it's going to be a particular. You, you, I see, you're a particular being, genies, you know. Our senses always give us concrete particulars, not universals. So our senses put us in contact with the concreteness of our world. Our powers of reason can take those particulars, what the what the scholastic said is that the power of reason ab can abstract it can draw forth from those particulars an idea so that the mind is capable of seeing um, the essence the the form so that if we're presented with 50 eucalyptus trees and 50 eucal or oak or or poplar we we're, we're not just arrested at a level of particularity, of singularity, the mind can say, that's an oak. Because they can grasp the form and they can see that, that all those oaks have that in common and it's what distinguishes those oaks from those eucalyptus. So the mind ha is capable of taking, by the way, I, this is so important because Descartes turns this on his head. The mind is capable of taking what the senses give it and abstracting like an x-ray machine, it can get to right. the, the... It can read, it uses its knowledge 
to figure out a lot of things about it. Right, but it does this. But I don't, I don't have a problem with that. I'm, I'm trying to understand the angel in essence. Okay, well, let me, let me just pick up from there. So reason, like an x-ray machine, can draw out the essence of a, the idea, the form. The best word for it is form, but you can use essence or idea or concept. Because an angel doesn't have a body, the angel, I thought Sue's description was really right on. An angel doesn't have a body. An angel's immaterial form. So what it grasps is the form of a thing without its concrete material properties. So what an angel apprehends in a tree is not all the sensory qualities that we would... I, I just thought Sue was right on. The angel would see the beauty of the form, and I thought, I, I mean, I really thought she was just bright on this, that it wouldn't just be that form of a tree, it would be the beauty of the form in relation to another wholeness because they're, they're much closer to the way God sees things. So we have ascribed to the angel the inability to see things with sight as we know it. Insofar as our sight is based on what the, our eyes are, you know, they're no. given. Right. Yes, yes. An angel can hear to the extent and in the same way that we with our ears can hear. Except, I mean, the only, the only trouble I'm having with that, Carl, is you make it sound like a limiting power when I would say yeah. that, well, no, hold on, wait, 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 just wait, hold on. Um, the, the angel... For you to put it that way makes it sound like it's a limiting power when I would say it's a limiting power for humans because we don't see the full glory of it. The angel would see the, the I don't to call it, the luminous beauty of the form of a thing in whatever, let's say the leaves of a tree or the color of a tree would be present in the form of that tree. The angel wouldn't be, so I wouldn't put a limiting form and I'd say the angel would see the radiance that's given to it because of its its leafage, its color, its you know all those sensor material properties. But they would be they would be translated into a form, so it would be radiant with color and beauty and light. But it wouldn't be limited by the material properties. He would see beyond what we see. So beyond. my what, what does that mean? He sees beyond what we see. I don't know. For for you to answer that, go talk to an angel. <laughs> what, what I'm trying to do is we don't know what it is. Well, we what we know. Well, Mark, Mark, if you would get past that stubbornness of yours, everyone's what we know is that there's a difference, and it's important for us to acknowledge that difference because if you take it away, you're stuck. You know, we uh, here. Let me let me let me try to make this is where we're going in C.S. Lewis's argument. We're stuck in our senses, that, that we have no way of distinguishing. Here, wait, I mean, this is going to really, this is C.S. Lewis's concern. If, we, if we're not aware of those, our ten, this is C.S. Lewis's argument. He's saying the tendency of the modern mind in its rationalistic character is to keep debunking. It's to keep taking away the worth of things. What I'm trying to do, and I, and I can't do it because I'm not an angel, but I'm suggesting if you knew this, you could extrapolate from it, even try to imagine it. I'm not an angel, I can't know. But I know enough to know that an angel knows more than we do, and through the form of a thing, the material things would not be cut out. They would be irradiated in that form. That an angel would see a greater glory, he would experience a greater glory to things because... His mind is on God, except for the angels who turned. 
An angel is pure form. He doesn't have a body. He is closer to God in that way, and the way he apprehends contains that in him. So it wouldn't be limited, even if he didn't see the particular things that we would see as humans, they would be present in the form so okay. what would getting close to helping me understand if if i understand you bob you're saying that this form and essence we can imagine maybe and think that there's something there but we can't experience it in the same way that an angel can right but okay. yeah yes we can we can extrapolate sort of abstractly but it's beyond it and and, and boethius lady philosophy's whole argument is we have to if if we're gonna if we're gonna deal with the question of free will and predestination, we have to be really clear that there's a difference between the way we know and God knows. And what she's done, Boethius has done, which I think is profound, it's one of the great contributions of the Christian Middle Ages. It contributes to Lewis's work that we're gonna hopefully get to. Is that um, it's important for us to the modern world has so debunked the way we know. It so puts down. Its, ten, its tendency is always to reduce, to blacken, to make bad, reductive. Um, what Boethius is doing is showing there, if we're going to understand the way we know, it's important to understand who we are as humans, get some sense of differences between us and God. She's not pretending to know the way God does. But what she is making clear is there's a fundamental difference between the way we know and he knows. So we, by analogy, we could extrapolate. Can we experience it? Absolutely not. We're not angels. Are we God? No, we're not. But to be, be able to say, for God there's no past or future that he sees. I mean, I thought Sue's description a week ago was right on, that he sees nothing except through a, a, an eternal present means that he has powers of comprehension that we, we that are infinite and limitless that we can't even begin to entertain we're just we're just making a distinction but and I'm and Mark keeps shaking his head and I I'm regretting it Mark I mean it just it seems to me you're well, just well, I mean, I wait 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 let me finish let me finish Mark you want to say something come in but let me finish Dante's going to say in the middle of the um, purgatorio paradiso that um, we're made in God's image. We're made in God. The modern scientific mind's not going to admit that. Everything it's going to do is going to be reductive and debunking. It's going to take away. If we're made in God's image, it doesn't mean we can see the way He does, but it does mean there is something glorious in the way that we know. And and not to acknowledge that is take away is to take away the way the, the I'm going to say the Protestant the secular mind because it says we're blackened by depravity and you know is to demean is to take away from everything that God gave it was one of it was one of the things I tried to stress when we were at the end of the Paradiso with Dante that if you if you stay with Dante through that whole journey and you come through the Paradiso you can't come out of it without saying the mo one of the most extraordinary things in God's creation is the human person find that in a scientific mind it's not going to happen. What Boethius is doing is trying to hold on to make us aware of the greatness of what we do have, to not take it away and still understand that there's something greater, that God made us in his image. 
Um, we have we have to give that everything that it deserves. Sorry, anyway, Carl or Mark or whoever wants to go on or Sue or anybody. Okay, at the risk of, since I evidently said something really good before, at the risk of saying something stupid, um, to me what you're saying is a little bit hinting at where Lewis started his argument with one person saying that whatever it was was pretty and the other saying it was sublime. And maybe when the angel looks at the tree, he starts with sublime. Well. He, she starts with sublime. <laughs> While as people start with pretty, they, they see the form, they see the leaves, they see whatever they see. And, but it's mostly based in the physical, sensory piece of that. And occasionally, we can go beyond that to just have one of those ah moments. Yeah. And that yeah. Gets, that's a gift from God, as far as I'm concerned. That's a, that's a chance to see the, the way things are, but we don't see that all the time. We go about our lives mostly not dealing with that. Yeah. But every once in a while, you get those feelings like that was wonderful. That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Now that's not you know. I mean, Lewis goes on with his logical argument with which I was having a field day as a mathematician. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but that anyway. That's sort of where I was. Think what I was thinking of at this point. Yeah, just to hold on to that for a second, I'll turn it back to Mark, you, and Carl. But remember, Lady Flossie's arguments is that four faculties are involved with humans: senses, imagination, reason, and or ratio intellectus. Ratio intellect intellectus means there is in us as humans a capacity naturatus to see holes. Do we see them in the way of angels? No, we do not. No, we do not. We're humans. We have. A, we're corporeal. By the way, the great glory of this, the wonderful beauty of this, is Christ took on a human body. He didn't just take on a form the way angels. Because, because, and he didn't go to redeem angels. This is so God. It's so crucial to our faith. The angels chose to rebel. Luther chose. He wasn't tricked. He chose. So a third of the. We, I mean, this is our account from Scripture. He chose. He wasn't tricked. Eve was tricked. That's why there's extenuations with us. God didn't take on the form of angels to redeem the angels. He took on the form of a human to answer our sin because we sinned against him in disobedience. So he didn't take on the form of angels without bodies. He took on a body form to redeem us because we couldn't, we couldn't give atonement for our sin. It was against God. For, for justice to be, this is so crucial. We have almost lost our sense of justice in the world, in this Christian, I mean, the, what the modern world has done with it. In order to answer an injustice against God, a God had to take on the form of a human, because only a God could answer a sin against a God, and only a human, because our, it was a human sin. Christ took on our corporeal nature. So he took on our bodily nature. I mean, can anything be more affirming of, I don't know what to call it, the love God had for his creation than to send his son who created the world to become a creature in it and to accept all of our limitations. 
So our corporeal nature is crucial to everything we do. God, Christ took it on. What Lady Philosophy is doing is affirming the place of reason of our body. She says, senses, imagination, ratio, intellectus. And, and it, it seems to me it, it perfectly corresponds to everything we know. We know through our senses, we know through our imagination. We have this power called ratio by which we can reason things. We can go this, 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 this. When, when mothers are teaching their homeschool kids, they're trying to teach them, let's say, a Euclidean proposition. You do this, you do this, 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 this. And, but we also know that there, something happens when we go through that prop, process where we go, ah. So I'm not just talking about something peculiar to angels. I'm talking about something peculiar to us as humans where we can grasp holes and still recognize that, that there's something in angels that's different from us. That when they grasp holes, I thought Sue did a wonderful job a while ago in the way, particularly because of the way she cut, she just, you know, instinctively went to, it wasn't just the beauty of an essence, it was the whole. That, that there are these different modes by which we know, and what the value, part of the value of what Lady Philosophy does is that she makes it clear the human mode of knowing how we know, how it's different from an animal, and um, and we can begin to extrapolate how an angel can we know it the way an angel does? No, because we have bodies. But given our human abilities of reason, can we begin to think about it and and speculate about it and and try to offer some knowledge on it? Yes. Um, do we know things the way an angel does? No. Do we know things the way God does? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But we've been given something special with the knowledge that we do have, and it makes it possible for us to relate to the order of angels. It also makes it possible for us to relate to the order of God. And one of the things that Lewis is arguing, I, I mean, in, I, I don't want I'm, I'm hold off Lewis. One of the things that Boethius is doing, it seems to me, is in because... Sorry, let me let me let me backtrack. Lewis is concerned because the modern mindset that came into existence from applied sciences, we're we're gonna have to wait until next week, from the applied sciences has taken that away. We can't according to applied sciences, we can't know that way. And let me make this clear, Mark, I'm partly got you in my mind. Let me to, to try to help here. This is really important. Um, it, I mean, to go along with what we're talking about, I hope everybody's following me, and this is probably heavy, but let me give me a minute, please. Um, Lewis is concerned because the modern sciences have so taken a hold of the way we think about reason that it's, his argument is that it's taking away our nature. It's actually demeaning us. It's, it's, it's shrinking us. It's taking away something good in us. The value of Boethius is that Boethius is showing that we have this extraordinary power and it helps Boethius meet his end when he's going to meet an unjust end. Um, sorry, where am I going here? Um, sorry. Where's I going? God, my mind... Um, one of the, one of the things that Lewis 
is arguing is that there is this greatness to human beings that we've lost because the sciences cannot get us to certain kinds of knowledge, particularly modern sciences. And I'll, I'll come back to this next week when we, can, when we can get back to Lewis. Modern sciences cannot get to what natural philosophy can. Mark, I hope this will at least partly be an answer to, I know the, the questions you have about these things. Let me make this distinction if I can. And I, I, I hope, I'd, I'd like, I don't know if Bob Kopecki is going to be in on this, but if you, you can't understand a field, theology, biology, um, anatomy, physics, literature, history, you cannot understand a field without being clear on its end, what it's trying to do, because geology is trying to do something different from physics. They have different ends. And that means having different ends, they're going to have different means and methods of arriving at those ends. This is crude. I'm sorry, but I mean, I, I, I don't have any other way. These are going back to fundamentals, and they're the things that most people don't look at. One of the fundamental differences between the sciences and natural philosophy is this. They have different ends. They have different methods. The ends of natural philosophy, the terminus, the terminus, the end point, is observable, observable reality. What's measurable, observable. That's the end. The end of philosophy is being. It's ontology. It's got a different trajectory. It's got a different method. It's got a different end. It has something different to know. Modern sciences are not going to allow for the truths of natural philosophy. Natural philosophy should be able to see the ends of science because it's higher than they are. It goes to being. So you're talking about two different ways of knowing in the human being. The scientist will start with an assumption that will lead him to a certain end. He will not allow other things. The natural philosophy starts with a different premise, a different end. His, his whole mind, a good one, should have his mind on being. They're two different terminuses, two different ends. The methods will differ. So every field has a different end, a different way of knowing. Anybody in poetry or literature would have a different, knowing, a different way of knowing from somebody in geology or physics. But anybody who cares about knowledge should have some sense of all those ends. St. Thomas did. St. Thomas could make a distinction between physics, biology, geology, history, philosophy, because his concern was the whole of knowledge. So there are different ways of knowing, and there's a different hierarchy to them too. Music assumes math. Take away math and you won't understand how chords and you know things. So do the modern minds know that? Absolutely not. And I mean unless you've you know been helping your edu education. So there are different ways of knowing, different ends, different means. Humans know differently from the way animals do. Angels know things differently from the way we do. But there's this great gift that we have as humans. We're made in the image of God. We can't know by experience what angels know. We can't know by experience the way God knows. He's infinite. We're, we're created. We, e even if we're united with God, 
even stop and think even if we're united with God we happen to enjoy the beatific vision and we're in his presence if he's infinite in his nature and we're finite in in his presence in his eternal now we will never stop knowing because he's infinite so we can grasp things in some ways even if we don't always know them from the point of view of that different mode like an angel or God. So one of the values of Boethius is that um, Lady Philosophy is making making us aware of something great in our human nature and still something beyond us. One of the things that Lewis is going to be arguing is that the modern sciences have taken that away and left us with a real problem. I don't want to go farther than that because we've got to get to Lewis, but but um, Mark Carl, I, I don't know if any of you have, have got questions or comments. You guys go ahead. Debbie, you got that you got that look on any of you, Sue, Carl, any of you got part of what's going on it seems to me in this I mean we, you know it's interesting. I'm really sorry Fred and Francis aren't here. Because if if they were here, I'd be putting coals on Fred's head. He's the one that started all this. I'd point my finger at him. You know, he wanted to find out these common threads in our work of literature, and he was turning to this whole question of justice and mercy and law and beauty and, you know, the things, but justice and mercy and why we have such a hard time with it. And so we took on Lewis because he's dealing directly with that, and then we went back to Boethius because Boethius is dealing with it. Remember, towards the end of Boethius, Boethius is saying, look, if all things are chance, this is Lady Philosophy, if all things are chance, and all things are determined by God, all things are predestined, then the notion of rewards and punishment makes no sense. If God predetermines everything, how can he punish some people or reward them? The the One of the major affirmations of Boethius's consolation is is that um, man has free will that he's made an image of God that God wants people free he wants them to be good because we have free will we turn from him but since he's a good God he's always at work trying to work with us to help us to compact to him so it's a great affirmation of man's of human free will and of this greatness that God is doing that we can know by reason, not by faith. We can grasp these things by reason. That's the part of the power and beauty of Boethius' Consolation. It's why, I've, I mean, the, the two works, Boethius's Consolation and C.S. Lewis's Abolition, both of them are showing the extraordinary resources of rationality in Christianity. We are, we are not fundamentalists. We, we do not believe reason is depraved. We do not believe that. It, it's where we separate ourselves from the Protestant world. We're not depraved. Reason is not undone. The, the great, I mean, one of the great distinguishing marks of Catholicism is we believe that we were not depraved or ruined, that we were wounded, that reason is a great gift. Believe this was Catholic, that the whole Middle Ages was Catholic. There was no Reformation yet. He was using reason 
to show the goodness of God and and to make it clear to Boethius that he should stop crying. <laughs> he should stop crying. Um, and Lewis, in some sense, is doing the same. He's using reason. There's no appeal to faith. None. Both men are using reason. And Lewis was a Protestant. I mean, he, when he converted, he was Anglican. He's using reason to 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 show how far reason can take us into this goodness in creation. So both of these men are, are not making appeals to faith. They're trying to show that underneath, at the basis of Christianity, is this extraordinary gift we have as, as creatures made by God, that these powers of reason and um, they're in danger. Um, and let me, let me, if I can, underscore that. I'll turn it back to you. There in, in, in Boethius, we see a guy who's whining and angry and upset and blaming and doing everything that all, I think, all, certainly I would. If I were in that situation, I would be really angry. And I, I would be really upset at a government if I were unjustly accused of doing something I didn't. I, I'd be outraged. Um, Boethius knows that. He's going he's gonna to be executed. He's doing everything he can to cut against passions. C.S. Lewis is addressing a non-Christian audience. It's, it's a world that's turned away from Christianity. He, 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 he does nothing along the lines of faith. Everything he's doing is trying to use reason to show us there is something we're losing. We're in danger of losing as people, whether we're Christians or not. So both men are using reason to help affirm this goodness. The poem that we just finished, Auden's poem, the Hore, it ends with this great affirmation of the glory of the sun rising. I thought Bruce's comment to Debbie was, you know, that the, the sun rises every morning, the birds sing, the political institutions can be going to hell, they, they can be approaching tyranny, I'm, my heart is with Debbie's. I, I hope she knows where I am. Political institutions can be moving towards tyranny. Governors can be asking things of people they should not be asking. Presidents. <coughs> there is still this great glory to God's creation. We cannot forget it. Even if it means we have to suffer crosses day by day as long as we're on this world. So both of these works are just a great affirmation of the natural powers of reason that support our faith. You guys go ahead. Mark um, or Carl or anybody here. Mark, did you have something or? No, it's okay. <laughs> Mark, we're gonna have you over for dinner. I would gladly come. No, I'm serious. Suzanne keeps laughing, and I because she does. We, <laughs> I, I, both of us are so glad you're here. I, I know that I probably give you a hard time, but we've got to have dinner just just so we can laugh through an evening eating, um, and 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 sorry, and drinking. No masks, no masks, just eating and drinking. Debbie, you got anything? <clears throat> I, I hope you'll pass on my comments to Bruce. Do, please, will you? Um, uh, 
and and ask that at Je, Debbie, ask that friend of yours when he's going to join us in class so he can get out of that damn twenty years ago marine world that he's in. Tell him I'm marine too, but tell him he knows that he knows that. He actually was going to tell you Semper Fi the other day. Oh, good. Birthday on the tenth. I I wish I had some comeback. I don't. I, I mean, what do you? Yeah. I mean, I wish I'd Semper Fi and the cross. I mean, what do you? You know, where, where do you go? Because every, every marine sort of assumes the cross anyway. You're gonna you're gonna go into a battle and die. I mean, but <laughs> that's um, right. Anybody? Any? I I really wanted to get to C.S. Lewis tonight, but I'm I'm genuinely glad for the time we. I I hope these settled some questions for you guys. I'm also hoping they keep open that that they help all of us be aware that there are things we can know, and that there are things we know that we don't know, but that we stand to in wonder. That we can know some things and they'll increase our wonder about them, you know, the way an angel stands in the world. Um, just so you know, by the way, we're going to start Dante and at Elizabeth Ann Seton. One of the one of the parishioners from St. Francis is, I think, going to join the group because she didn't do Dante. We've, we've done it. But just know we're going to start there. And um, for any of you guys who want to go back to Dante, join us. You know that you can join on either night, Monday or Tuesday night. The, the link is the same. I'm really looking forward to starting Dante again because in the Paradiso, Dante is going to take all this up. It's, it, what's, it's what makes the Paradiso so hard. Hell and, hell and, the, and Purgatory are easy because all of us are given to darkness. Going into the Inferno, I mean the Paradiso, you're going into a, an, an intellectual world of light. He's going to take on all these questions having to do with angels and God and indwelling and it's just a different work. So any of you who want to go back and pick up Dante, um, just know we're going to start it at Elizabeth Seton. I'm so glad to be with you guys, all of you. Um, all Mark, most especially you. <laughs> God, it's just no. I'm not kidding. I just I, the 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 greatest moments in me as a teacher have always come with people who keep pressing questions that um, that you know keeps me honest, so that I I don't keep thinking I have answers and trying to answer people. It's hard job. So I'm 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 grateful for all that you do to keep me honest. Um, well, I'm grateful for the class, Bob. It, it, it is a wonderful class, and there are certain things I may disagree with you on, and that's perfectly fine. But I also realize you have a calling and a knowledge because of literature, because of the things you've done your whole life, that I will never have. So don't I say that. Leave any piece of that <laughs> out of it, I'm happy. Yeah, I don't. Do not. This is from a friend. Do not say that. Do not ever say that. Mark, I and I, I, I just, I, I'm not sure that you'll hear this. Or you've been with this, you've been at this for five years. You would not be at this if you were not taking something in the whole time. So as much as you want, to, I don't. You wouldn't be here. No, if you no weren't. I take it in, but you I do. Just, I know my mind, and I know my, I don't have a mind for poetry and blah. That, that, yeah, I can read it. And yeah, I can get it, but it's not me, and that's okay. You but are. there is something of value there that I know that I don't have. And if I can take a piece of that, 
Now, I can't get all the way where you're at, and I'm okay with that. But if I can get a little piece of it, perhaps it will help me. Yeah, right. all I want to do is take away the perhaps because I, uh, that's you. You are so you are so. I'm going to say that this this is going to go online. You are so goddamn stubborn. What else can I say? Because because I'm not going to. I I'm going to take away. There's no perhaps. You wouldn't be here no matter what you want to say. In that if you weren't t- taking those pieces, I'm I'm honestly grateful that I that Suzanne and I can be the means of giving you those pieces. You wouldn't be here if those pieces weren't a part of your life for five years. I, I believe that in my heart of hearts. And I'm not stubborn. I'm Polish. Evidently, you've never been around <laughs> Polish. So, there's a difference. Uh, uh, of, co- of course. God, of course you're not stubborn. because God, is there anything more stubborn than that? I'm not stubborn. I'm Polish. God, will this man ever hear himself? Bob, you're Polish. Help him. Yes, well, he, I, I agree with him on it. Yes, what he just said. What should I say? Oh, right? God. Okay, Bob, I'm only half Polish, so I'm only half American. <laughs> <laughs> I've always considered you a friend, Carl. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. Okay, listen, you guys, it's... You just it's, have to get these... Just have to get these West Coast people, you know, to, to sort of God. understand, understand how grateful. <laughs> why? Why am I doing this? Somebody tell me, please, why I'm doing this. <laughs> Here, listen. Before we close off, um, I let I cannot tell you how grateful I am for you guys that we're doing this weekly. I cannot. It it is a, it is a great gift to Suzanne and me to um, to do this. Um, Anyway, it's a great gift to us. Um, it's Thanksgiving weekend, or Thanksgiving week. All of you, I, I know there are burdens. Um, by the way, I'd ask you for prayers for our family, for our oldest son, Thomas, and Christopher, and Jonathan. Jonathan's got medical things. I'm less concerned with him than I am for Thomas and Christopher, but please pray. I, I should have included them in my prayers. Please pray. Please, please pray for um, us, for Suzanne and me, for... Thomas and Christopher. Um, we're all headed towards Thanksgiving. It's a time to be thankful, whatever our burdens. Um, I, I'm going to leave you guys with this because it's been a heavy burden on me. When I did my doctorate and I was in the last week, I'd been offered a job at a college in California, but I had to have my doctorate completed. I think I probably told you guys this story, but... I had to have my doctorate completed, and Louise Cowan, who was the director of the English program at UD, was doing everything she could to get me through. So she and her husband, who was the who had been the president of UD, were coming over to my apartment every night working through my dissertation. I'd never had anybody work on my writing. She was rewriting every sentence. If <laughs> you could imagine that through a dissertation. <laughs> it, it really taught me something about language. I, I, I didn't have that kind of edu- education. I didn't grow up that way. But Don Cowan, one night, uh, I got up from the table to go get some water or something, and I passed him by and then came back. He said, this, this, will, take, this will take some hard work to live up to. I had never heard a comment like that in my life. What the two of them were saying and what they believed is that when we read literature... It wasn't to make us smart. It wasn't to, you know, in high school and college to get an A 
I, I, I so that fact so saddens me more deeply than I because you know I flunked my first year of school I just believe failures are important and the fact that so many teachers let kids slide through is an, an awful I don't know a mechanism of enabling I think failures are important that we have to go through them if we're going to learn but what they were saying is it isn't enough just to be smart to know something you have to live it and one of the sources of inspiration that I take away from these meetings is um, you guys <laughs> you, you guys have been at this now for several years we've been doing this together and I'm trusting that all of us take this to heart and try to live these things otherwise why do it I, I don't believe you're here in just intellectually to learn so at Thanksgiving it's a time of being thankful so much of the readings we're doing, Boethius Lewis is making it clear is that there's this great order here, no matter what awful things are going on in our world, the tyrannies, political tyrannies that um, threaten us right now. So all of you on this Thanksgiving weekend, and, or week, and particularly Thursday, have a good Thanksgiving. Um, be glad. I myself am grateful that we're doing this work together, and and um, I'll, we'll see you next week. Okay, have a good week. Stay safe. Yeah, yeah. Particularly, stay safe from this. Stay safe from um, the virus. And Debbie, stay safe from your Marine Corps husband. <laughs> I try. That's why we have a two-story house. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Okay, you guys, have a good week. Bye. All right. Happy Bye. Thanksgiving. Thank you. Thank you. Same to you.